coming up on Garden Talk. When you use phosphorus that is impure, you already see that what you put in into your fertilizers is not 100% available to your plants. Over application of phosphorus is definitely a problem, both indoors as well as with big agriculture. It's, it's crazy to hear how many myths there are and also like how many myths are spread by some really big companies in the industry. Potassium is crucial in both veg as well as flour and it is actually the only element that is not part of an organelle. And most of the binding when it comes to fertilizers, it is being done through a mixture of pressure, heat and a catalyzer. It all has to do with filtration processes. How clean is the raw material that you use? As nutrient manufacturers and brands, we should be open and transparent about what's inside the products. What's up, everybody? For you that don't know me, my name is Chris, a.k.a. Mr. Grow It, and you're tuned into the Garden Talk podcast. This is episode number 44. In this episode, I interview Rico from Dutch Pro Nutrients. He talks all about how nutrients are sourced and some forms of nutrients that should be avoided. We aren't able to get into all of the nutrients used by plants, but we do get into a small chunk of them. I'm sure that we'll have a part two of this in the future. Thanks to all of you who support this podcast through Patreon. If you'd like to support, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash mrgrowit. Before we get into it, I want to acknowledge that one of my goals for this podcast is to bring zero cost for information about gardening, all plants, to the general public. That being said, I'd like to thank the sponsors of today's episode, who helped make that goal possible. A big supporter of this podcast is AC Infinity. They sponsor this podcast, and I use their products. AC Infinity now has gardening tools and accessories, such as heavy-duty fabric grow pots, trimmers, grow room glasses, drying racks, plant ties, and trellis nets. They also have all of the equipment needed for a ventilation system. I will leave a link to AC Infinity down in the description section below, and you can use discount code MrGrowIt during checkout for a discount on their products. Big shout out to Dutch Pro for sponsoring this podcast. Dutch Pro is a plant fertilizer company that has been around for over 30 years. They have base nutrients, and they also have additives such as PK boosters, root stimulators, CalMag, silica, a nutrient optimizer, and a foiler feed. They also have pH regulators to help ensure that the nutrients can be uptaken properly. I will leave a link to Dutch Pro's Amazon store down in the description section below, and you can use coupon code MrGrowIt10DP for a discount on their products. Spider Farmer is a sponsor of the podcast. Coupon code MrGrowIt5 will get you a discount on their products. They're most known for their LED grow lights, but they also have other products such as grow tents, inline fans, and carbon filters. I've used their SF1000, SF2000, and SF4000 LED grow lights in the past, and I got some great results with them. I will leave a link to Spider Farmer's Amazon store down in the description section below. And don't forget to use coupon code MrGrowIt5 for a discount on their products. Okay, we are back. Welcome to the Garden Talk podcast. Today I am joined with Rico from Dutch Pro Nutrients. How are you doing today? Nice. Good man, actually. I'm excited for the show. And obviously, Christmas is coming up soon, so uh, we already put up the Christmas trees here in the office. So I'm ready. What about you, Chris? Nice, nice. Ready. Super excited for this episode today. We're going to get into how nutrients are sourced. So really, the goal is for listeners to be able to look at the back of their bottle and recognize some of the different nutrients that are shown there. It can be confusing for some. Be aware that some of the forms are actually, uh, we should avoid because that they are actually harmful to the environment. So we're gonna go over that today. Um, Dutch Pro, you've been a sponsor of this podcast. I just wanna thank you for doing that, You know, being able to provide this information to the general public that they can access for free. You've sponsored that, so thank you. Yeah, and thank you, Chris. Um... You know, I mean, we, we both, you know, share, try to share as much knowledge as we can. And it's a lot of hard work. And, you know, you give the platform to people actually to, to go to. And it's crazy how many people hit me up and be like, oh, I've seen you, you know, at, at Garden Talk with Mr. Grow It or whenever my trade shows, they mention your name. And we even had a situation a couple of months ago where someone came up to me and be like, oh, can you let Chris know to do an episode about this and this? I don't know if you remember. Um, and then I called you up, right? And that, I mean, he's a fan, honestly, and he was so happy, Chris. So thank you as well for actually offering that platform to, um, uh, a lot of growers. It's pretty, pretty cool. And I listen to it as well. You know, I'm a fan of your show as well. That is really cool. That's awesome. Well, first thing we do on this podcast is introduction. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got into gardening? 
Yeah, definitely. So in this case, we go back to the 80s. I wasn't around then, I'm going to be honest. But uh, my dad, he started the Dutch Pro Nutrient Company. And he was a grower himself in Amsterdam. And him and his business partner actually um, started to look into nutrients to better, you know, like how to grow, uh, how to make sure your plants grow bigger, um, you know, have better yields, etc. So that basically started late 70s, early 80s. And then at 85... Um, they really got heavily into it. And then early 90s, that's when they came up with the Dutch Pro Nutrient line. And then from that moment on, you know, they just grew out the company. So in this case, when I come into play, it's literally the moment I was born. <laughs> the moment I was born, I grew up, you know, in between plants. Um, my dad, you know, telling me about it. But I must say, he never really pushed me in any way to do something with it. But... As I just grew older and I saw more and more and I read up about it myself more and more, I just thought it was so cool. And I think plants are so um, undervalued by a lot of people in this world. And so I really decided, you know, to stick with it. And because I was so excited about it and I just, yeah, things went automatic and normal. And um, we have a pretty good sized company here in Europe, I, sh uh, I should say. We have our own factory and stuff. And then I branched it out to the U.S., so that's where I come into play really is the U.S. side of things. Um, yeah, there's been a cool, cool journey, to be honest. That's awesome. That's a really cool story. So let's hop into the actual elements, some of these elements, some of these nutrients that are for plant growth. We're not going to be able to get through all of them today. Mm -hmm. You know, there are 17 essential nutrients for the plants. I think there's a few here that we're going to go over that aren't actually an essential element, but are useful for plants as well. So we'll get through as many as we can today. And then maybe in the future, if the audience mm -hmm. demands it, we will get into a part two where we can go over more of it. Let's start with nitrogen. So talk to us about nitrogen. You know, how is it beneficial for the plant? Maybe just do a quick run through of that. Maybe get into the nitrogen cycle and kind of how it's sourced. Yeah, no, definitely. And nitrogen, I think, is the most well-known element as well. So it's pretty cool that we can actually start off with that one. Um, but yeah, basically what nitrogen does is it's like one of the building blocks to create amino acids. And amino acids, in turn, is one of the building blocks to create enzymes or proteins. You know, enzymes, proteins, is the same thing. And enzymes are pretty cool because you need them for nutrient transportation. They, you know, like speed up the processes inside the plant. And honestly, without enzymes, a plant just can't function. But again, it all starts with the building block, which is nitrogen. And then furthermore, nitrogen is one of the um, molecules that is needed to create the chlorophyll molecule. And chlorophyll is needed to create the green pigment, which actually is able to uh, attract and use light energy for photosynthesis. So nitrogen, I think, is a really cool element. It's, like I said, one of the more well-known elements. Um, and what is also cool to know about nitrogen inside the plant, it's a mobile element. So for those of you guys that want to know, like, hey, where do I find the nitrogen deficiency? Look at the older leaves, the one at the bottom, because nitrogen is mobile. So it goes wherever it's needed the most, which is, in this case, the younger leaves. Um, but... The problem with nitrogen is it is a very difficult element to attract from nature, I should say. And um, for most of the time, actually, to like early 1900s, all nitrogen that was used by plants and to grow crops and everything literally came through the um, uh, nit nitrification from bacteria and fungi inside the soil. And one of the discussions that I sometimes have with people you know, and especially people that um, want to go back to back to, you know, to the old days where they want to use bacteria, fungi to actually give like organic nutrients to the plant, which, by the way, guys, I'm not against organic nutrients, not at all. But like I said, one of the discussions I have is with with the amount of people we have right now, we're currently at 7.8 billion people. Is it still doable actually to feed the whole world if we actually use the methods from back in the old days? And I literally give them examples, Chris, and I don't know if you know that, but go back three, four hundred years in time. It was not actually crazy to think of that sometimes 10 to 15 percent of a population in Europe would literally die off because there wasn't enough food around, you know, because of a misharvest or because climate 
um, you know, wasn't playing its part. So um, yield-wise, there wasn't just literally enough um, uh, food, actually, to feed all the people. So that is one of the things that whenever I talk, you know, with people about synthetic nutrients, I always think about, you know, tell them, like, think about can we feed the whole world? And we were 7.8 billion. That is 5.8 billion more is back in the 1900s. Um, yeah, can we actually produce enough in an organic way? Now, coming back to what you said, the nitrogen cycle, because like a nitrogen is a difficult element to fixate, right? So normally the nitrogen cycle goes, you have plants that die off, decay, you get pl of animals that, um, you know, um, in this case, actually do the big thing, if you know what I mean. And um, the, the brown part, <laughs> I don't know if you want to say that <laughs> yeah. loud. And, and then the bacteria and fungi, I mean, they start to work, right? So the nitrogen actually in all the plant animal matter that's being left behind, they actually first turn it into ammonia. And then from ammonia, it actually being turned into ammonium. And ammonium is already one of the forms that plants can use. And from that moment on, it goes from ammonium um, to nitrates and then to nitrate, which is, again, another second form of nitrate, nitrogen that can be used by plants. Now, in this case, like I said, um, the Germans actually figured out a way to speed up the process and to actually fixate nitrogen so we could mass produce ammonium and nitrate which again are two directly available forms. And this goes through the Haber-Bosch uh, process. And I'm sure a lot of people actually already heard of it somehow, but the process, ba process basically goes as follows. Um, so first of all, what you see in the air, like literally like 80% of it is nitrogen. Nitrogen, um, yeah, like I said, nitrogen with an N and then two. And then a part of it is oxygen, but most of it is nitrogen. So basically what's being done is air is being withdrawn and then methane is basically being put into this chamber, um, heated, and we literally talk about crazy heat, guys. We talk about 750 to 930 Fahrenheit, where it is being brought together, a crazy amount of pressure. Again, we talk about like 100 bar, which is crazy. And then basically what is being done is it goes through like four processes, four different types of um, process where methane, the air, heat, pressure, and in this case also, um, uh, what did I say? Yeah, air actually being put together. And a catalyzer, and in this case, they often use a catalyzer, which is iron, actually is able to bind the molecules together. So it is able to do bind the nitrogen with the hydrogen molecules. Because if you talk about ammonium, which is the first uh, directly available form, the molecular structure, guys, is NH4, which is one nitrogen, four hydrogen. Now, if you talk about nitrate, which is the second available form, it's one nitrogen, it's um, an oxygen, and then it's a, ne it's a negative ion, so it's negative three, um, basically. But it all starts first with ammonium. And why is it important that we first start off with ammonium? Because there's a second process involved to create nitric acid. Now, Chris, whenever you look at like a bottle, right, of liquid nutrients, and you turn it around and you look at like the sources, because um, companies, uh, fertilizers, we do need to state our sources. You often see when it comes to nitrogen, like a calcium nitrate, magnesium nitrate, but also nitric acid, right? And um, you, you, you agree to that, right, Chris? That those are like um, recognizable terms, what I said, right? Calcium those nitrate, are common, yep. yeah, very yeah. common. Yeah, pretty common. Urea so is another nitric one. Acid, what did you say? Urea is another one. Urea is another one, which is in this case like uh, a cheap form of nitrogen. It's literally one of the cheapest forms you can get out there. Um, it's also the one that is not the best available to plants, to be honest, because it's such an yeah, or, organic product and um, it's easy to overapply, I should say. And if we can skip it a little bit, that's also because you were talking in the beginning about bad forms, right, of raw materials. And 
often what is the case if you look at like big egg is the quality of fertilizer that they use now you have to think you know like those big agricultural farms that grow crop or soya or whatever I mean, they don't really get the most out of their pricing, if you know what I mean. So they're easily turned towards input materials that are kind yeah, that are low quality. Obviously, the price needs to be low, so it's often low quality materials as well that they use. And unfortunately, because they don't really have such a good profit structure, it's difficult for them to implement technology um, to really analyze what their plants need. So it's easy for them to over-apply fertilizers. <laughs> And a big problem, which you see in the Gulf of Mexico, and I don't know if you heard about it, Chris, is uh, eutrophication. And it's basically the over-application of fertilizers. And when you get over-application and it washes out of the fields, into the rivers, and eventually into the oceans. Uh, why is that such a big problem? Well, basically, and it's funny enough, the problem is, is that algae they grow so phenomenally well when more nitrogen actually, you know, ends up in, in this case, the Gulf of Mexico. So it is not literally that it kills because it's, there's too much nitrogen and, and the algae in the plants, they just don't know what to do with it. It's literally that the algae just grow way too fast. And what we have here, at least, I mean, I'm currently in the Netherlands, guys. What we have here is those little side canals, right? And it's very easy to just literally only see green on the water from the algae. And basically what happens is that the algae block sunlight. It blocks the sunlight for the plants below um, the water. And those plants, those water plants, they're crucial for, for creating oxygen inside the water, which in this case, all animals need even underwater. So when algae actually blocks um, getting sunlight directly to the plants underneath, eventually you literally turn off the oxygen input into the water. So that's when all the animals, all the fish, everything dies because there isn't enough oxygen in the water. So eutrophication in this case, literally means you have too many algae growing from the over application of fertilizers by big egg and therefore um, not enough oxygen is being left in the water anymore or produced and then all the uh, plants as well as animals under the algae dies off um, so personally I, I love technology i think also indoors chris if you because i i see a lot of grow facilities right in the grow facilities and the technology that some of those facilities put in i think is amazing to see um, and also reduces actually the over application of nutrients now going back actually to the sourcing of how in this case nitrogen is fixated the ammonium that we first talked is actually used in the oswald process to create nitric acid and nitric acid guys you often see it with a ph uh, down you often see that um, companies use a form of nitric acid to lower the pH in someone's nutrient reservoir. And basically with the Oswald process, it's kind of similar to the Haber-Bosch. Um, they don't use methane or anything like that. But what they do use is the ammonium. Let it go to multiple processes of heat, which is eventually they start with a high heat and they lower it down. Um, they add water in there as well along the process and by doing that they create an environment under pressure that the water and the ammonium actually bind together and that eventually at the end of the line creates nitric acid now important for you guys to know is the filtration processes i mean there are multiple plants uh, and what i mean with plants like factories all over the world that produce in this case uh, nitrogen with the Haber-Bosch process. But basically all the elements that we use, no matter if it comes from like rock, air, um, animal, plant matter, you know, what people call organic, it's still all organic. I mean, there is no 100% pure form of anything on this planet. So even with these chemical sourcing, as people would call it, there are still filtration processes that needs to be involved to create purities. And as we move along, Chris, towards phosphorus, for example, uh, phosphorus is an element, guys, that is very easily able to bind with heavy metals. 
heavy metal like an iron, heavy metal like an aluminum, something like that. And when you use phosphorus that is impure, for example, you already see that what you put in into your fertilizers is not 100% available to your plants. And one of the things that we need to do, Chris, as a fertilizer brand, if we want to be registered in the U.S., is we need to test all our products for heavy metals. And if the heavy metals, for example, testing um, turns positive, or in this case, it's a negative thing, of course, because you hit a certain amount of heavy metals, your fertilizers are not allowed to be sold on the market because it is a danger to both plant as well as you for human consumption. Um, and in the case of phosphorus, you also reduce actually the quality of the material because it is not available to the plant again. And so, like I said, let's just move on to phosphorus, to be honest, Chris, because I think we've ever said everything about nitrogen. Yeah, so transitioning over to phosphorus, yeah. it, that's another thing really that contributes to these toxic algae blooms. You mentioned that with nitrogen, yep. same thing yep. with phosphorus, same exact thing, over fertilization, runoffs into these lakes, ponds, toxic algae blooms. So that's a big reason why a lot of people don't use some of these in, you know, it's kind of frowned upon to use some of these in outdoor environments, particularly for runoff into the lakes and streams and so on and so forth. But yeah, let's get into phosphorus a little bit deeper. So how is it beneficial to the plant? How is it sourced? You know, what form does Dutch Pro use? Why? <laughs> so on and so yeah. forth. It's good. I think phosphorus is a really interesting one uh, because of the history as well. You know, like, it, it's funny, but, like, if you look at, like, sourcing, it also evolved over time, you know. Often how people did it back in the days, and we come, especially potassium, I think, is a very cool one. Um, but, yeah, well, let's start off with phosphorus first. I hope you can see I'm very excited about it, you know. So sometimes <laughs> I'm like, okay, you know, straighten up, Rico, just one by one. <laughs> but, yeah, phosphorus. So, basically, phosphorus is a crucial element in especially energy production. And uh, a quick, you know, quick notes about what happens. You got ADP, which stands for adenosine diphosphate or diphosphates. And ADP needs to be transformed uh, to ATP. It's adenosine triphosphate. And with the ADP, you got two phosphates involved. And with the energy molecule ATP, you got three mo molecules involved. So you need to apply phosphorus to your plants in order to actually create these energy molecules. And funny enough, all living um, animals and plants, they use the same source of energy, ATP. I think it's amazing. Um, you know, like how efficient sometimes literally, the, you know, the world can be. I mean, it's so efficient, guys, that literally we all use it. You know, we all use the same form of energy, which is called ATP. And what is happening with ATP is the bond eventually is being broken up again. And when that happens, that's when the energy is released to fulfill all the processes. That happens in both a human as well as animals as well as in plants. Now, furthermore, um, phosphorus is also an activator of enzymes and roots love it as well. Roots grow really, really well under phosphorus. Um, I mean, multiple things like calcium as well. Roots love calcium as well, guys. But we come to it later. And one of the things that I just think is funny, Chris, when you look at fertilizers, is the over-application of phosphorus. You know, people talk about the PK 1314 or they talk about like a 5234, you know what I mean? And it's like more phosphorus for like flower development and uh, bud development. And yes, it is important. Don't get me wrong. It 100% is. But if you look at nature and if you look at the resources and I show people that they're like wow I didn't think that, you know that that was the case and what I show them is actually plants don't need that much phosphorus as people really think that they need it, it's crazy you know a lot of people they talk about nitrogen that you shouldn't use in a flower well first of all guys um, I would say try it try using you know uh, a product that has no nitrogen during flower and you will see yourself what happens. I understand why people want to cut it down. That's 100% sure. But I hear some people talk about don't use any nitrogen at all. And I'm like, okay, I guess no amino acid production. I guess chlorophyll production is going to be down as well, you know. So uh, good luck with that. But yeah, phosphorus is, over, is often an over-applied element. And like I said, it's easy to bind with heavy metals in the substrate. So 
most of what they apply, Chris, um, literally just resides in the soil, in the substrate itself. And there are a couple of ways that you can use to increase efficiency, nutrient uptake, um, like humic and fulvic acids, microbes, um, but still over application of phosphorus is definitely a problem in the world, both indoors as well as with big agriculture. Um, interesting, if we go back to history, actually, is that it was already discovered in uh, the 1600s. And again, I don't know why it has always been by a German. It's crazy how often we're going to see the Germans involved in agriculture. <laughs> it's crazy. But um, it was actually already discovered, Chris, in 1669, actually. And funny enough, you just mentioned urea. It has to deal with urine. So literally what happened is when you actually distilled urine, a white salt was being left behind. And that was the first phosphorus, to be honest. It was very flammable, glowed in the dark. So whenever you see something glow in the dark, right, like a bowling alley or whatever, they also use some form of phosphorus in there. Um, and funny thing enough, I don't know, do you know where the name comes from, Chris? No. It actually means like miraculous bearer, bearer of light. Huh, interesting. I didn't know that. Another question for you. And obviously, I did my research before, guys. Not that I know everything right before. But I'm not. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's not that I'm a know-it-all or anything like that, guys. But uh, funny enough, do you know how many gallons, actually, of urine it took to create, like, 60 grams of phosphorus? No, how many gallons? 290 gallons to produce wow. 60 grams of phosphorus. That's crazy. That's right? a lot. That's a lot of tea <laughs> collection out there. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously, that wasn't a source that we could use to use in any type of um, application actually and funny enough after that the largest source up until uh, end of the 19th century was actually the, the the bones and also guano you know bones of animals um, yeah and because there's a lot of like phosphate found inside bones and also in guano you know there was a good amount of phosphates found as well um, yeah, so funny enough, the whole world turned actually towards um, the bones because calcium phosphates were found in there. And then um, actually, like I said, you also know in guano itself. But then at one point, because more and more um, synthetic fertilizers were actually used and demanded for, especially towards the end of the 19th century, that they needed to find a different source because... Literally at one point, everything was already basically used and it just couldn't, couldn't keep up with the demand. And one of the reasons why synthetic fertilizers were so popular at the end of the 19th century had to do with Justice von Liebig. And I think you talked about it, Chris, before in a different episode with one of your, um, you know, other people actually. But for those of you that didn't see that specific episode... So Justice von Liebig is basically a German scientist again, always the Germans, <laughs> that discovered those 17 elements that a plant need to grow and develop themselves. So the MPKs, the calcium, the sulfur, the magnesium, etc. And um, interestingly, interestingly, that happened around 1850, 1860. So after that, that's really because he finally discovered, hey, this is what we need to do to actually grow really good crops. And in a consistent way, that's when the whole synthetic industry basically came to life. And then what happened, because like I said, at one point, the demand actually over uh, exceeded the supply. And that's when it turned to phosphate rocks. And I don't know if you, you heard about that, Chris. Oh, very common. Yeah, rock phosphate is used very commonly. It's, it's a number one source. There isn't... Uh, well, I shouldn't say there isn't. I know there are some really big companies working on a different source of phosphorus. It's still in the experimental phase. And the reason why is because they literally think that with the demand that we currently have, that the world is going to run out of phosphorus in like 40 to 50 years, which is going to be a problem, especially if at that time we're probably going to be with 9 to 10 billion people. Um, you know, we all need to be fed. We are all hungry multiple times a day. And phosphorus is, is honestly crucial in that um, supply. But yeah, rock phosphates indeed is where the majority of the phosphorus comes from. And basically what happens with those rock phosphates, I don't know if you know what an electric arc is, Chris? No, I don't. So it's basically like a, 
like a seated like a big furnace and it's also like how to make steel and steel is also being made by extreme heat and an electric arc you can see it is like you got like three of these pins so you got like three of these pins right and they all actually um like electricity electricity goes through it and they basically connect with each other through electricity and because by doing so an extreme heat is basically produced and when phosphate rocks actually are being put in there and they're actually mixed with in this case uh, a product it's called coke c-o-k-e it's not the coke that comes from colombia in this case guys but it's a natural product um, it actually mixes with each other and then elemental phosphorus is actually created an elemental phosphorus is like a pure form of phosphorus that can be actually further amended. And in this case, what I do actually is um, they distill it and then actually they burn it with air to produce phosphorus pentoxide. And then the phosphorus pentoxide in this case is being dissolved in water and that creates phosphoric acid. And phosphoric acid is another um, frequently used form in fertilizers it is also used we actually we use phosphoric acid in our ph minus bloom version because we got two different bloom versions you know all about it because you got the bottles at home chris <laughs> oh yeah yeah phosphoric acid very commonly used in ph down products and often says that it kills off microbes which uh is a myth you know people think that they're adjusting the ph uh, you know using ph up or ph down and that's wiping out the whole microbial population which is is false it's one of the the common myths that you hear true and it's it's crazy to hear how many myths there are and also like how many myths are spread by some really big companies in the industry and often what kills like the microbes is literally the ph you know when it's too low basically everything below ph4 guys then is when most bacteria can't grow they can't grow in that environment but when you use phosphoric acid on its own and you mix it with water and everything the ph would never get below ph4 so just like you said it doesn't kill anything at all um, that's also one of the reasons why fertilizers liquid fertilizers often have a pretty low ph on its own it also has to do actually with the uh, longevity of the product you know to keep it in good condition because one of the last things that we want when you sell your fertilizers is the bacteria can grow inside a bottle um, and literally the bottle of nutrients creates you know it's like a bottle of like a positive poison poison not poison that you know, plants want to use to grow big and heavy and you know what I mean? <laughs> so, um, yeah, if you just look at places, for example, like Chernobyl, life wants to grow every single where. So, one, like I said, one of the things we have to do as far as liquid fertilizers, um, you know, like manufacturers, we need to keep the pH low to keep the microbes out initially. Um, yeah, that's like a little bit of a side note. What we use, because that is also like one of the questions I think you want to know, Chris, like what does Dutchpro use? Uh, we use a mixture actually. So we use like indeed phosphoric acid. Um, we also use something called uh, mono potassium, uh, mono uh, potassium phosphorus um, as well. Um, yeah, it, it honestly has to do with like creating the right mixtures, the right ratios uh, for some of the products. We personally only use the minimum of a food grade product. We always first look at like the heavy metal analysis of, um, you know, the supplies that we get in because we only want to ensure that what we sell to you guys, it's also like the highest quality that we can offer and still offer the best price quality ratio because um, that is also important, obviously. Um, so that's personally what we use. Gotcha. Yeah, lots of information about these elements, more than I expected. Uh, Sorry, man. Like I said, I, yeah, I'm just excited about it. It's okay. It's great. Great information for sure. Let's move on though. Let's go into potassium. So similar to the other yes. elements, you know, how is it beneficial to the plant? How is it sourced? And then kind of what form does Dutch Pro use? And are there any forms that we should avoid? Yeah, no, definitely. That's a... Uh couple good questions though. Uh, one thing, one side note. Why I'm so excited about it, Chris, I was in LA a couple of weeks ago and I was actually with a friend of mine who grows and he, we got in the store and obviously there's so many brands to choose from. And he's like, Rico, he's like, 
to be honest, he's like, I don't understand nutrients. He's like, I look at the bottle, I look at the bag, I see all those, you know, sources. He's like, but I don't understand. What does it do? What does it mean? How is it actually being sourced? And then I had to think about this podcast, obviously. And I was like, okay, I really want to, you know, make sure that uh, I tell like the full picture, full story. Um, that definitely double triggered me. <laughs> when <it happened. laughs> but yeah, potassium. So potassium is crucial in both veg as well as flour. And it is actually the only element that is not part of an organelle. And basically what it does is it is crucial for nutrients transportation. And it is also crucial for um, the regulation of CO2 through the stomata, through the leaves. And there's something called like a potassium pump. And I'm not going to go too deep into it right now because it's about sourcing. But basically what you have to realize and understand about potassium is it literally regulates the inflow and outflow of elements from cell A to B, or at least plays a crucial part of it. Um, potassium also activates enzymes. And like I said, enzymes are used also for nutrient transportation, but also to speed up a variety of processes inside a plant. Uh, yeah, and like I said, potassium is just crucial both during veg as well as flour. Uh, the name I think is very interesting Potassium, which is obviously a Latin name, but it's also frequently called potash. So basically with, with potash, how it really started is just uh, by burning wood, you know, and the, and the ash literally that was being left behind, um, place it in a pot and potassium is very water soluble. I think it's one of the most water soluble elements actually in this world. And basically by mixing it with water and then filtering it, you get like the potassium that's being left behind. And initially, actually, it wasn't even used as a fertilizer, funny enough. Um, it was eventually used as a fertilizer because they had so much of it and they had no clue what to do with it. And it was like, you know what, let's just use it as a fertilizer and, and see what happens as an experiment. But up in that point, it was actually used for uh, soap production, mainly. Yeah, potassium was actually used as like a soap. So basically what they would do to make um, soap back in the days was use like fat from like a pig or whatever, and, and then actually mix it with water and then potassium. And if you mix it up, that's literally how they created the, the first soaps. And funny enough, um, a lot of the trees and forests that were cut down in Europe back in the days was actually to create potassium. And something very cool, I think, is the first US patent like in history was actually because of potassium as well. It was actually an improvement of how to filter potassium to offer a more cleaner source of potassium. First patent ever in the US history was about potassium. Um, and then we go actually back to the 18th century and it was signed by George Washington himself. So I thought it was pretty cool as well. Uh, but yeah, a lot, a lot of like trees were cut down actually because of it. And it was literally like one of the uh, biggest sources up until like the 19th century and the 19th century actually like i said so many trees were cut down like the forests were cut down in europe then forests were cut down in the u.s uh, as well uh, because of potassium production and then what happened then is they found potassium really deep into the ground and it was literally an average they would find it like over 4,000 feet deep which is obviously crazy deep and it also brought a lot of risks with them to actually mine the potassium. So accidents would happen. Um, it wasn't uncommon, you know, that like gas and oil was actually sitting pretty close at that uh, depth as well. So some accidents happened with that. But eventually what I did, and I thought it's so simple, Chris, and it is so smart and it still works so well that it's still being used up till today. They used the water solubility in the, their advantage. So if you guys Google, there's an amazing video out there on YouTube. It's about potassium mining in Utah, like two hours southeast from Salt Lake City. And literally what they do is they drill a hole to the source of potassium. They pour water in there. They literally, you know, give potassium time to dissolve in the water. They just pump it out at the other side through a different hole. Then they literally create these lakes, which they treat with um, a mixture of copper sulfate to actually keep the bacteria and fungi away. 
and they literally just wait. They let it evade. They literally let the water evade out of those lakes, and what is being left behind is just a thick layer of potassium. And that is literally how most of the potassium nowadays is still sourced. It's an efficient way. Um, and yeah, it's so easy, actually. Wow, that's super fascinating. Yeah. Honestly, Chris, uh, it's a very um, interesting video as well to watch for all, for everyone in your audience. Because you see those lakes and those lakes, actually, they change the color of the water changes color because of the copper sulfates and because of the uh, different evaporation stages that they are in. And then um, the potassium, you know, after the potassium is sourced, it, it is easy to bind. And most of the binding when it comes to fertilizers, it is being done through a mixture of pressure, um, heat, and a catalyzer. You know, like a, an iron, iron, for example, or another metal. Um, that is literally the the basic what you what you need to understand of how elements are attached to each other, like a potassium sulfate, or you know, like when you look at the back of a bottle, you see potassium sulfate, or you see um, monopotassium phosphate, for example, or you see calcium nitrates. And like I said, those elements, I mean, they need to be binded together through some form of process, and that often goes through heat, pressure, and uh, catalyzation as well. Now, we use a mixture. So we use, for example, potassium sulfate. We use monopotassium, phosphates. Um, yeah, we use a couple of varieties of potassium as well. Is there any forms that we should avoid? Good one, good one. Um, are a couple of forms that you should avoid? Well, yes and no, I would say. And it all has to do, again, with the filtration. Pro this is something that you can't see from a label, unfortunately. And it's also a little bit the strong point, obviously, of the brands, you know, like the raw materials that they use, the quality of the raw materials. But it all has to do with filtration processes. You know, how clean is the raw material that you use? And what you guys can totally do, and you can definitely do it with us, you can literally ask for the heavy metal analysis if you guys want. If you want to see how clean our nutrients are, go for it. You know, send me a text. Go to a Dutch Per USA Instagram or, you know, go to our website, contact us. Um, actually, we also already have it out on the website as well. So you guys can just look it up. You know, I think we should, as nutrient manufacturers and brands, we should be open and transparent towards the people about what's inside the products. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. I completely agree with you on that one for sure. Let's yeah. move on to sulfur. Sulfur is one of the ones where I feel like not many people talk about it, but it's super important. I mean, it's right up there with the importance of NPK. A lot of people can yeah. would uh, would say. So talk to us about sulfur. How is it beneficial for the plant? How is it sourced? What form does Dutch Pro use? So on and so forth. Yeah, exactly. Well, sulfur is actually a funny, funny one in a variety of ways. Well, first of all, it's an important actually element because it's uh, one of the building blocks for two crucial amino acids, which is methionine and cysteine. And they are both crucial actually for the transportation of uh, electrons, which are then actually used to create the energy molecules. Uh, and basically without sulfur, honestly, you would note it straight away with deficiencies when your leaves turn basically white, yellow, white. But you would definitely see that your growth is stagnated in your overall uh, flower development as well. Now, funny enough, and I never realized it actually up until I did like some deeper research. But do you remember like those videos? You basically saw them like back in the days where you saw people like wearing like cotton cloths. And you saw like these, all these gases around them and you had like yellow, it was like basically like a yellow mine, that were, but it was on the outside. You saw all gases, oh, it's like the old silver mine, sulfur mines actually. And it's super poisonous, super poisonous. And you still sometimes actually see it, you know, in like very poor countries because sulfur definitely brings in some money, but it's so poisonous. So if you look up like, you know, sulfur mines, uh, poor countries or underdeveloped countries, you know, give it a term, you would definitely find them. And that was also like, had I back in the days would source it, um, but it was not a sustainable way. It was not actually a way that would work long-term wise because of the health of people. Um, so basically how they then did it was they used a different process. It's called the fresh process actually. Um, 
which is what they would do. Again, they would use the solvability of the solubility of sulfur itself. So they would find sulfur mines. They would actually put hot water in there, hot enough so the sulfur would actually melt and mix in the water. And then once brought to the surface, actually, they would literally have like a 99.5% efficiency ratio. So 99.5% of the sulfur deep in the mines, they would get out. Um, unfortunately, this process was very costly to do so. So they turned away to a different source and that source is still used up till today. And honestly, funny enough, sulfur right now, it is a uh, byproduct from the petroleum industry. <laughs> yeah, wow. it literally is a byproduct from the uh, petroleum industry. And it has a couple advantages. You know, first of all, less risk was involved as far as like health concerns, but it was also cheaper. And basically what happens is the byproduct, it's called hydrogen sulfide. Um, and hydrogen sulfide actually goes through a process called Klaus, the Klaus process. And this process actually is already like pretty old. We go back to like late 1800s. Um, and basically what, what happened, and it's just similar to the different processes, it would go through like distillation. So we go through multiple distillation processes where heat again was involved, um, temperatures, like I said, heat was involved, uh, pressure was involved, catalyzation was involved. Um, but when nitrogen needs like a temperature like 800 Fahrenheit, we talk about 1900 Fahrenheit in this case. Wow. Pretty, pretty <laughs> warm. So uh, during winter time, guys, whenever you're cold, just stay close to a sulfur uh, <laughs> <sulfur> furnace. <laughs> And and what I actually would get when they would treat it with this uh, this heat is they would get elemental sulfur, and again elemental sulfur is a pure form that they could build on to eventually create sulfuric acid, because that's by the way where we um, gonna end up. We're gonna end up with sulfuric acid. So with the elemental sulfur, in this case, um, it would go through a different process called the contact process. And basically what that would do is the sulfur is burned to sulfur dioxide. And then sulfur dioxide is again being turned into sulfur trioxide. And again, heat is involved, pressure is involved, um, catalyzation is involved. And then the sulfur trioxide eventually is being um, mixed with water or added with water to create sulfuric acid. And this sulfuric acid actually um, it's already a source of sulfur, obviously, on its own. But you often find sulfur as a combination of. So, for example, you have copper sulfates. You got um, like potassium sulfates. You know, Epsom salts is actually magnesium sulfates. You know, so sulfates is often a um, product that is combined and mixed already with another product. So the sulfuric acid is crucial in different processes to bind with, for example, magnesium, to bind with, for example, potassium. Um, yeah, that is literally, in this case, all there is to say, Chris, about sulfur. Um, we use, in this case, not sulfuric acid on its own, on its own, but we use combination products, like I said, the potassium sulfate, um, like I said, like a copper sulfate, for example, anything um, in a combination with um, the Epsom salts and everything as well. And it all comes down to how clean is this nutrients. And there's such a big variety. There are so many. If you think that the choice for picking your nutrients in the store is already big, just wait till you go to the backhand of things. <laughs> the amount of, you know, raw materials that you can choose from is crazy. It's so diverse. Um, and yeah, it, it, it's difficult to, to explain and to show people, because it's obviously also, you know, like we don't want to make our competition smarter already than they are. It's also our secret recipe, of course. But um, yeah, you have to look at like how clean is it? How well is it filtered? And also like what is important to us at least is like the processes that were involved, because definitely what you see is um, a lot of like uh, sources actually, you know, are come from low cost 
places as well. And that's something that we don't deal with. You know, we don't want to deal with low cost uh, countries because they're often also like safe on quality measures. They're also often safe on healthy measures, you know, or even have like kids involved or anything like that. And that's something that we don't want to be associated with. So we only actually do business with companies um, that we actually align with as well, if that makes sense. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. So we definitely covered not really much when the grand scheme of things. We covered nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium. We did sulfur. I wanted to get more done, but there's just, there's so much. We're definitely gonna have to do a part two. That is for sure. One thing I do want to comment on is that I really like, and it's real apparent that you guys are focused on the science behind things. Now, I learned quite a bit in this episode, but there are some things. I'm currently attending Utah State University. There's a horticulture certification I'm going through right now by Dr. Bruce Bugby. He's well known in the, the community here. And a lot of the things that you're saying in this episode, he's saying. So I know that you're going by the science when it comes to uh, these elements, uh, you know, sourcing, avoiding some of the things that you should avoid because it's bad for the environment, so on and so forth. Like I said, we're definitely going to have to do a part two. That is for sure. Uh, you know, next episode, I think silicon, uh, calcium, magnesium, boron, copper, iron. We could go on and on. I mean, <laughs> even, even chlorine is something that's worth talking about. But let's do a part two here within the next couple months. I think this is yep. one that people are going to want to hear about. Wrapping things up on this episode, you know, how can the listeners find you and what do you have upcoming in the future? Yeah, so there are a couple ways actually to find us. I mean, you can go to our website, uh, dutsprousa.com. Um, a lot of information, videos out there. They can go to our Instagram. I'm personally pretty active out there. Just That's for USA. Um, unfortunately, we go in and out of a shadow ban, you know, at the moment. So we probably have to put in That's for USA completely in order to find us at the moment. Uh, we are starting our own YouTube channel pretty soon as well. Um, actually, uh, we have a pretty cool idea as far as podcasts. So hopefully we can actually do it the other way around too, Chris, and have you on our show. Um you know, I think that could be pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, as far as like for the future, a lot of cool things. We have some really interesting uh, things as far as product development. We are going to focus heavily on um, spreading and sharing knowledge, you know, with you guys as much as we can. Because we literally want to help out as many growers as we can become better growers. And I learn every single day um, from amazing people. And I would love to help other people as well. And I know the whole team is motivated to help other people as well. I'll definitely have your channel and Instagram and website all linked down in the description section below on YouTube. I know there's a lot, lot to discuss with next time. It's going to be like a Harry Potter series. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. <laughs> <laughs> But I'll definitely have your links down in the description section below. Coupon code as well. If anyone's interested in purchasing Dutch Pro products, use coupon code MrGrowIt10DP. Works on Amazon. Also, I believe it works on your website. Correct me if I'm wrong there, but it should work on your website as well. I use them in my garden. Plants are looking great. I, I love it. So thank you so much for coming on to this episode. Hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Same. See you guys. <laughs>